Hey guys, before we start the show, I just want to give a quick shout out to another podcast. Welcome, dear reader, to Dispatches from the Armchair. There's so much news, and the world moves so fast. What are the big ideas and historical forces that are really shaping our world? Go deeper than the headlines with Dispatches from the Armchair. You are listening to the Pacific War Channel's podcast. If you wish to see the video version of these podcasts, go to the Pacific War Channel on YouTube. Hello there, welcome back to the Pacific War Channel, where we cover the entire history of the Asia-Pacific War of 1937 to 1945, and all the major events that led up to it. Described as the Hermit Kingdom, Korea in the late 19th century saw a major war that saw one empire rise and another fall. This is part one of the First Sino-Japanese War of 1894 to 1895. Now before we begin, please hit that like and subscribe button as it would mean a lot to this little channel. And as you can see, I have another little parrot to feed. The Joseon Dynasty of Korea lasted approximately five centuries and was a tributary to the Qing Dynasty of China since the early 15th century. China held suzerainty over Korea, meaning the right to approve Korea's foreign policy decisions, but not to interfere with its domestic affairs. China chose a very laissez-faire policy when it came to Korea, and did not directly involve itself in the affairs of Korea until the late 19th century, where our mess begins. So we've heard about Korea and China, but how does Japan fit into all of this? Japan had interest in Korea for both security and economic reasons. Korea was located in the vortex of Russia, China, and Japan. Korea had been the locus of two military clashes between China and Japan in 661 to 663 and in 1598. Hell, Korea was the staging area for two Mongolian invasions of Japan in 1274 and 1281. During Japan's Meiji Restoration period, reports of Russian, German, and Chinese ships being in the vicinity of Korea, reached Japan strategists. This led them to refer to Korea as a dagger thrust at the heart of Japan. Japan worried that other countries, particularly Russia, might use Korea as a base from which to attack Japan. Thus, from the perspective of the Japanese, they needed to establish a military presence on the peninsula and prevent other countries from establishing a base there. Alright, so let's get into this mess. In 1864, Chiyo Jung of the Joseon Dynasty died without a male heir. Through Korean succession, Gojong became king of the throne at the age of 12. Since Gojong was too young to rule, his father, Yao Wong-gung, became the Dao Wong-gun, a regent who ruled Korea until his son reached maturity. The Dao Wong-gun began to make reforms strengthening the monarchy, but at the expense of the traditional aristocratic ruling class of Joseon dynasty known as the Yangban class. They made up mostly the civil servants and the military officers. The Daewongun also took up isolationist policies during a time when Asia was being opened up by the Western nations. You see, after China was forcefully opened up by nations like Britain, France, and America, they soon turned their attention towards Korea. In response, the Daewongun made isolationist policies similar to Japan's Sakuku policies to stop Westerners from exploiting them and earning Korea the nickname Hermit Kingdom. To thwart possible threats to his ruling power, the Daewongun selected an orphan girl of the Yuhong Min clan to be his son's queen. You see, the in-laws to the Joseon monarch historically held a lot of power, and the Daewongun wanted to be absolute. Empress Myeongsun, once married to his son, began to appoint all her relatives to important positions within the government. She also allied herself to the political enemies of the Jiaogun, and by 1873, 
used all of her network to oust him from power. <laughs> well, I guess it didn't work out for him. This isn't my world. Disappointed! King Gojong reached the age of 21 and officially replaced his father, the Daewongun, as ruler of the Joseon dynasty. He proved to be much more willing to open Korea up and cooperate with nations like Japan more so than his father. He saw Japan as a model that perhaps his Korean kingdom might base itself upon. On September the 20th, 1875, the Japanese ship Onyo, under the command of Inoue Yoshika, was dispatched to survey the Korean coast. While surveying, the Japanese sailors put ashore on Gangwei Island, requesting water and provisions. According to the Japanese, the shore batteries of the Koreans suddenly fired upon the Anyo, and the Japanese began to retaliate by bombarding the forts and landing ashore. The Japanese torched several houses on the island and attacked Korean troops. Using their modern rifles against the Korean matchlocks, the Japanese butchered 35 Korean soldiers, and this became known as the Anyo Incident. Because of the conflict, King Gojong signed the Gangwei Treaty of 1876 with Japan, which opened up trade in three ports of Korea, Busan, Wansan, and Incheon. The treaty was also a Japanese attempt to end the Joseon dynasty status as a tributary state of the Qing dynasty by affirming Korea to be an independent state. Yet, despite this attempt, Korea still remained under Chinese suzerainty. During this time, China, Japan, and Korea were all anxious about Western advances and the danger of colonization. Russia was building the Trans-Siberian Railway and had established the cities of Vladivostok and Khabarovinsk along the coast and near northern Korea. Because of all of this, China began to take a more active role in Korea. During the 1880s, the royal family and Korea had become divided politically, and two rival factions emerged. There was the Saldadang faction, which were conservatives who sought to maintain power, sticking to the Chinese model, backed by the Daowongong. Then there was the Gaowaidang faction, a group mostly made up of Yangbang intellectuals who supported Meiji-style reforms and stronger relations with Japan, backed by Queen Min. Poor King Gojong was stuck in the middle. King Gojong gave in to the reformists in 1881, and a young Korean official named Kim Okyung, alongside 11 other Koreans, were sent to Japan on a mission very similar to the Irokara mission that Japan sent to the West. The mission was to investigate all the aspects of the modernization process that was the Meiji Restoration. After the tour, Fukuzawa Yukikichi, a Japanese liberal intellectual, arranged for Kim to remain in Japan and study at Keiwei University. Over time, Kim became convinced that Japan's Meiji Restoration model was essential for Korea to survive the new modern world. When Kim came back to Korea, he became the de facto leader of the Gaowindang Party and began to promote reforms based on the Meiji model and desired to end what he saw as Chinese interference in Korea. It goes without saying his proposal saw major backlash from Korean conservatives who enjoyed good relationships with the Chinese. In 1881, Lee Hong-jong, our old friend from the Taiping Rebellion, was transferred responsibility for managing the Korean policy. Lee Hong-jong supported Korea's efforts to avoid conflict and promoted stability by having good relations with both China and Japan. In the early 1880s, King Gojong favored some Meiji reforms and invited Japanese military officials to help train 80 Korean cadets who would form the nucleus of a new modern Korean army. In July 1883, similar to the Japanese samurai revolts against the ending of the stipends preceding the Satsuma Rebellion, older Korean soldiers became very angry. They had been retired against their will and were waiting more than a year for their payment. When they received their pay in the form of rice, they found that the rice had been mixed with chaff, making it rot and became inedible. The infuriated soldiers seized weapons from the government's arsenals and took to the streets, attacking Korean reformers and the Japanese, who they saw as the culprits to their plight. 
Four Japanese officers who had been training the Korean military were killed alongside many Japanese citizens, and the Japanese legation was burnt down. The rioters tried to kill Queen Min, who was supposed to be in charge of the rice payments, but she escaped by being carried away on the back of her servant. The rioters did manage to kill one official of the Min family, and this event became known as the Imo Uprising of 1882. The Daewoo-gun and conservatives supported the rioters, but Kim Go-jung did not. So the Daewoo-gun used the situation to take power. He removed from office all the officials from the Min family and executed his own brother, who had allied to Queen Min. Believers. No, stay here. I'm in charge. Do you feel in charge? In response to the killing of the Japanese, Japan sent a few hundred soldiers to Korea to protect its citizens and to support its Korean allies in the government. Although China did not support the Imo uprising, it was alarmed by Japanese troops coming to Korea, and in response, it sent 4,500 soldiers under General Wu Changqing. The Chinese forces quickly quelled the rebellion and defeated the much smaller Japanese force. Then China lent its support to the conservatives in the Korean government, thus abandoning its policy of suzerainty and taking a real active role in Korean domestic affairs for the first time in over 250 years. Lee Hongjong was furious with the Daewoon-gun for upsetting the Sino-Japanese relations by overthrowing the lawful Korean government. Lee seized the Daewoon-gun and took him to China, where he placed him under house arrest for over three years, and then he placed King Go-jong back in power, alongside the Min family officials who had been dismissed. Lee then negotiated the Treaty of Chimulpo with Japan, which saw Japan getting a small indemnity payment with a formal apology. Chinese forces remained in Korea and in effect became an occupational army. Many Koreans saw China as their protector, but others saw China as an arrogant imperialist power interfering with Korean independence. Lee Hongjong sent a new capital guard to Seoul named Yuan Shukai, who would be in charge of training local Korean forces. As a result of all of this, King Go-jung abandoned his earlier reformist policies disappointing the Meiji reform enthusiasts in Korea. The Japanese took their minor defeat to heart and sought the advice of German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck. His advice led them to create the Fukuko Keoe, enrich the country and strengthen the army slogan, and a new course for Japan. Japan issued an imperial edict authorizing the expansion of its military. Kim Okay-kun was frustrated by the Korean government's continued unwillingness to take steps towards the Meiji restoration. This led him to initiate a poorly planned coup on December the 4th, 1884. This coup was called the Gapsin Coup because it occurred in the year of Gapsin in the East Asia 60-year cycle. Kim Okay-kun admired the young samurai who overthrew the Shogunal government and initiated the Meiji Restoration in Japan, but with 3,000 Chinese troops still in Korea, he knew he had no chance of overthrowing the Korean government. However, when the French Sino War broke out in August 1884, China was forced to send troops to Vietnam to preserve Chinese interests there, and Kim found his opportunity to carry out his coup. Though Kim did not have the support of leaders in Tokyo, he did have support from some Japanese embassy staff in Korea and a small number of Japanese troops in Seoul. During a banquet celebrating the opening of Korea's new post office on December the 4th, 1884, when many conservative high officials opposing reforms were present, Kim's supporters set fire to a nearby building, creating noise and confusion. They seized King Go-jung and took him to the palace. They then summoned various Korean barracks commanders who might mobilize the military against them, one by one, to the palace and killed them. Kim then promulgated a 14-point reform program and called for the termination of China's suzerainty over Korea and the abolition of the Yangbang class. Although Kim prepared a detailed list of reforms, he was astonishingly unprepared to implement them. His hope to maintain power with just 200 Japanese troops in Korea against 1,500 Chinese troops still stationed there was unrealistic to say the least. 
After three days, General Yin Shikei brought his Chinese troops to Seoul and a battle broke out. 180 people were killed, including 38 Japanese and 10 Chinese. The officials put in place by Kim were dismissed and Kim went on the run. Japanese citizens living in Seoul became targets for further attacks and their homes and businesses were looted and burnt. Kim and eight of his followers managed to escape to Japan aboard a Japanese ship anchored in Incheon. Now, before the coup, King Gujong had met with Kim and offered some support for his reform goals. After the coup, all those who supported such reforms were discredited. Kim was now regarded as a traitor for his bloody attacks. Many Koreans felt he should be executed. Kim would spend the rest of his life fearing for assassination. Ito Hirobumi and Leong Jung both made statesmanlike efforts to preserve the peace and maintain a workable Sino-Japanese relationship. In April 1885, they signed the Tianjin Convention, to which both Japan and China agreed to pull troops out of Korea within four months. The convention also stipulated that if either nation was to send troops to Korea in the future, they would first notify the other nation, which could also send troops. Chinese troops remained in areas near the Korean border, forcing Japan to accept China's greater influence over Korea. Many Koreans were happy to be rid of Kim Il-kyun and his Japanese friends, but some complained that Yung Chukai and his forces were overbearing on their government. The failed gaps in coup did not end Japan's efforts to cooperate with China and Korea against the West, but it did strengthen support in Japan for defending Japanese interests abroad. Unfortunately, the expression survival of the fittest, coined by Herbert Spencer in 1864, spread quickly in Japan and would be used to justify a belief in dominance of the strong over the weak. Japan saw European powers claiming to be civilized nations and establishing colonies in less civilized nations. They then exploited the resources of these colonies to benefit the home country. In 1886, the Beiyang fleet, responsible for protecting China's northern coastline, made a port call in Nagasaki, displaying four modern battleships, including the Dingyuan, purchased from Germany and far larger than any Japanese battleship at the time. The Chinese were showing Japan the great power of their fleet, with the implicit message that Japan should not be foolish enough to come into conflict with China. During the port call, scuffles broke out between Chinese sailors and Japanese locals in Nagasaki's red light district. Four Chinese sailors and two Mitsui police died in the scuffle. The Qing government did not apologize for the incident, and this created more animosity towards the Chinese in Japan and freshly after the Gapsian Coup incident. The visit impressed Japan, but not in the way China had intended. After seeing the Jinyuan, the Japanese government decided to construct three large cruisers, each with a firepower capable of taking down the Jinyuan. After 1889, China continued to invest in the Summer Palace, but slowed significant investments into its navy. In contrast, Japan began to make significant investments into its naval construction and purchase of arms. Despite the tensions in Sino-Japanese relations around Korea, trade between China and Japan grew in the 1880s. Japanese businessmen expected trade with China to continue to grow and began to collect information on Chinese market opportunities. This information ended up giving Japan all the intelligence it required to start a war with China. On the other hand, China's reporting of Japan was surprisingly out of touch with reality. Beijing was being told by China's ambassador Wang Fengkao that the Japanese were so beset with internal squabbling they were unlikely to be active externally. Most importantly, the Chinese were not taking very much interest in Japan's naval activities. In early 1984, Kim Ki-kyun was invited to visit Yi Hongjung in Shanghai through a Korean acquaintance named Hong Joon. After a decade fearing his own assassination, he accepted this invitation, and on March 27th, en route to Shanghai on ship, Kim was shot by the Korean acquaintance who was actually tasked with his assassination. Kim Ki-kyun's body was mutilated, cut up, and displayed in various Korean cities to show what happened to traitors to Korea working with the Japanese. Shortly after Kim's assassination, a rebellion broke out in Korea. The Dongyak Rebellion began with a religious sect called Dongyak, 
which meant Eastern learning, who became angry that corrupt officials in Seoul were imposing higher taxes on local areas where their sect was residing. The Dongyaks were mostly made up of peasants who were unable to pay their higher taxes and feared losing their land. They were also very anti-Japanese since the 1870s when rice was increasingly being commercialized to Japanese merchants who would lend the money to local peasants, leading the peasants to not be able to repay the funds and thus would have their land confiscated. To them, this was exploitive and dishonest. In 1894, the Dong Haks saw a large amount of support triggered by the actions of an oppressive county magistrate in northern Jola. The rebellion spread to the surrounding counties and King Gojong sent a force of 800 soldiers to stamp down on the Dong Hak base in Jola. His troops were routed, utterly defeated, and many deserted while the Dongyaks grew and spread. King Gojong panicked because the Dongyaks were gaining support from his own troops, and he was forced to ask the Chinese for aid. Now this is where things get really messy. Yi Hongjung responded quickly on June the 7th, dispatching 2,000 troops to Incheon and 2,500 troops to Asan, led by Yue Jiechou, which lies 40 miles south of Seoul. He did not send them directly to Seoul, believing it would upset the Japanese. He planned to hit the Dongyak rebels as they marched on Chola to Seoul, hoping to thwart conflict with the Japanese. China states in accordance with the convention of Tianjin, he informed Japan of all of this before sending troops, and that Japan acknowledged this. Japan, upon hours of receiving the said notification from China, sent 8,000 troops to Korea under General Oshima Yoshimasa, but according to the Japanese, they did not receive any word from China. They simply acted when they found out about the situation. Thus, Japan was arguing China violated the convention of Tianjin. The Chinese forces quelled the Dongyak Rebellion in just a few days. Liang Zhong proposed to the Japanese that both countries should agree to withdraw, but Japan made a counter-proposal. Japan insisted they should cooperate in assisting Korea to undertake the major steps towards modernization. The Chinese and Korean observers were convinced that Japan was driven not by a desire to promote Korea's economic development, but by its own economic interests to obtain Korean grain at cheap prices. The Chinese government rejected this proposal and demanded the Japanese withdraw from Korea immediately. On July the 23rd, 1894, at 4 a.m., two days after China refused Japan's counterproposal, the Japanese broke into the Korean royal palace, capturing the queen and one surviving prince, and held them for safekeeping, but did not apprehend King Gojong, so say the Japanese. They occupied Kangbyokgyang, replacing the existing Korean government with members of the pro-Japanese faction whom granted Japan the right to expel the Qing forces while dispatching more Japanese troops to Korea. The Chinese government rejected the legitimacy of the new Korean government and now things were tittering on the edge of war. This was the point of no return. On July the 25th, China sent four ships, cruiser Juan, torpedo gunboat Guanyi, and a troop ship Kuoxing with its escort gunboat Zhoujiang planning to reinforce the forces in Korea. When they were passing near Pyeongdu, Feng Island for Westerners, near Incheon, they ran into three Japanese cruisers, the Akitsushima, Nanawe, and the Yoshino, and the Japanese opened fire on them, starting a battle. The Kuangyi took a volley of shells hitting her boiler room, leading her to take on water, and eventually she sunk. 37 of her crew died, and 71 managed to swim ashore. The Jiyuan was hit multiple times and tried to make an escape, just when the Japanese caught up to the Juan, did they notice the Kaohsiung and the Tsuokyang in the distance. The three Japanese ships quickly intercepted the Kaohsiung and the Tsuokyang, allowing the Juan to escape. The Tsuokyang surrendered immediately without a fight to the Akitsuma. The Kaohsiung had an English captain named Thomas Ryder Galsworthy. Galsworthy assumed the Japanese would focus on the Chinese gunboat, Tsuokyang, 
since they were a British chartered transport ship, thinking he was safe and under the protection of the British civil in Singma. The Japanese ordered the Kaohsiung to follow the Nanue, and Captain Galsworthy agreed. The Chinese soldiers aboard, however, objected and threatened to kill the British crew unless Galsworthy took them back to China. After four hours of negotiation, and while the Chinese soldiers were distracted, Galsworthy and the British crew jumped overboard, attempting to swim to the Nanue when they were fired upon by Chinese soldiers. Galsworthy and two crewmen survived and were rescued by the Japanese while the others died to Chinese gunfire. Nanue then opened fire on the Kaohsiung, sinking her. 300 of her crew survived, swimming away, one including German military advisor Major Konstantin von Hanenkenen. Over 1,100 Chinese died, the Japanese suffered light casualties, and only one ship was lightly damaged. All of this left Oshima and Yu Chang's forces isolated on the Korean mainland, poised to fight. The First Sino-Japanese War had unofficially begun. So just to summarize everything we've learned in this episode, the Korean political situation was divided between Chinese and Japanese spheres of influence. A bunch of riots, coups, and military accidents led China and Japan both fighting for greater influence over Korea. When China and Japan finally got to the boiling point, it seemed that it would be Japan who would deal the first blow. I hope you liked this episode, and please join me next time for part two of the First Sino-Japanese War of 1894 to 1895. And if you have not already done so, please hit that like, subscribe button, leave a comment, helps with the algorithm, because this little guy, he likes himself some peanuts. This has been the Pacific War Channel, over and out. Hello there, welcome back to the Pacific War Channel, the channel where we cover the entire history of the Asia-Pacific War, 1937 to 1945, and all the major events that led up to it. Now this is going to be part two of the First Sino-Japanese War of 1894 to 1895. Not already done so, you should probably go watch the first part, but if not, you know what, you do you. Now also, if you've not already hit that like and subscribe button, please do so, as I've got my two parrot friends over here and they need some peanuts, which only your subscriptions can get them. So let's do a quick breakdown of both nations' military forces that will be fighting in this war. First, we have the Imperial Chinese Army and the Beiyang Fleet. Please note that Western observers at the beginning of this war unanimously thought China would crush Japan. The Qing Dynasty did not have a unified army and was still using a system almost identical to the one that was used during the Opium Wars and the Taiping Rebellion. There was the Eight Banner Army, the Green Standard Army, the Braves, the Huai Army, under the personal authority of Li Hongzhang, which was considered China's best, the Huai Army, although the minority, would be taking the majority of fighting in this war. A big issue was that each army had a large number of imported firearms, but nothing was standardized. Thus, they were equipped with heterogeneous firearms, which ranged from very old-fashioned to modern rifles. This caused an enormous issue with differing sorts of ammunition supplies. Combine this with the corruption within the Qing administration, many were embezzling arms and munitions. A lot of ammunition would go missing or be made defectively. The army was a mixture of fully modernized, partly modernized, and extremely old-fashioned, almost medieval units, which no commander could hope to utilize successfully. Many of the older officers thought that the war could be fought the same way the Taiping Rebellion was fought. The soldiers themselves came from such differing parts of China that they had no sense of unity nor affinity for another. They suffered from a lack of morale because on top of all of this, they had not been paid in a very long time, and many were suffering from opium addiction. The Beiyang fleet was one of four modernized Chinese navies and the dominant navy in East Asia. The Japanese were apprehensive about facing it, especially the two German-built battleships Jingyuan and Junyuan. Yet China's warships were actually overaged and obsolete despite appearances. They had more armor, 
but were also greater in weight, making them slower, and their crews were not properly disciplined in their maintenance. A major problem was that their main armaments most had short barrel guns in twin barbettes mounted in echelons and could only fire in restricted arcs. This meant low muzzle velocity, poor penetration, and terrible accuracy at longer ranges. The Chinese naval tactics were also very crude. Ships were assigned in pairs, and doctrine was to stick close together following the flagship and to fight head-on in a beam formation. The signal books that they used were all in English, a language most Beiyang naval officers did not fully understand. The Imperial Japanese Army was first modeled on the French Army, but after the Franco-Prussian War of 1871, began to adopt a more Prussian military model. The IGA were equipped with an 8mm single-shot Murata-type 18 breech-loading rifle as standard issue. Magazine-type 22s were being used and introduced in the use of the Imperial Guard and 4th Division. Their artillery was a 75mm field gun based off Krupp designs. Many IGA officers studied in Europe, and they were well-educated in the most up-to-date strategies and tactics. They were roughly a force of 120,000 within two armies and five divisions. The Imperial Japanese Combined Fleet was mostly modeled on the British Royal Navy with some influence from France. They planned to employ the Génécole Doctrine, a strategic naval concept developed by France. It advocated for the use of small, heavily armed ships to combat larger ones such as battleships. The French devised the strategy to counter Great Britain's larger navy. The Japanese would utilize fast warships, specifically cruisers and torpedo boats outfitted with the capability to destroy larger ships. So the last time at the Battle of Pungdo resulted in the sinking of the Kaohsiung and a major victory for the Imperial Japanese Navy, but official war was not declared yet. Four days after the Battle of Pungdo, 4,000 Japanese troops led by Major General Oshima Yoshimasa marched south of Seoul to attack the Chinese garrison at Tsingwan Station. The Chinese garrison was 3,880 men strong under the command of General Zhejiechao. They knew that the IJA were coming and they built fortifications such as trenches, six redoubts, and flooded the local rice fields. A major problem for Zhe Jiechao was that his anticipated reinforcements were lost at the Battle of Pongdu, and they had been preparing for a pincer move against Seoul. The IGA began with a night attack on July the 28th, hitting the front of the Chinese defenses with a diversionary force, while the main force of infantry, cavalry, and artillery successfully outflanked them by crossing the Ongsong River. They fought bitterly for two hours, forcing the Chinese to flee to Asan, leaving behind many of their weapons and equipment. The IGA in quick pursuit took Asan by 1500 hours on July the 29th, 1894. Surviving Chinese forces fled towards Pyongyang, and the Chinese casualties were around 500 killed and wounded versus 88 killed and wounded for the IGA. The chance of encircling Seoul was now lost for the Chinese. Official declaration of war was issued by Emperor Guangxu on July the 31st and Emperor Meiji on August the 1st. What is interesting about the declarations was the major difference in tones. Emperor Meiji's declaration used phrases like the family of nations and law of nations. He was portraying Japan to be a modern state, perhaps even a world power and that they were acting to help Korea break free of China's archaic vassalhood to be an independent state. Emperor Guangxu, on the other hand, made multiple references to China's traditional tributary system with Korea and that they were merely protecting their vassal. They accused the Japanese of breaking treaties and attacking them unjustfully. Most importantly, they refer to the Japanese only using the racial slur Wuzhen, loosely meaning dwarf, countless times and speak in a general tone of superiority. Chinese forces in Korea retreated to the city of Pyongyang, where they consolidated into a force of 13 to a possible 15,000 and began to build defenses. The Japanese had 8,000 forces under General Oshima around Seoul and Chumulpo, 10,000 troops of the first IGA reinforcements under the command of Marshal Yamagata Aritonomo, consisting of the 5th and 3rd Provincial Divisions, landed at Chumulpo on June the 12th, 1894. They all rendezvoused, combined as a force of over 20,000 strong to attack Pyongyang. The defenses at Pyongyang were too strong, so the Japanese focused on capturing Muktangte, 
a Chinese fortress north of Pyongyang. Muktangte was at a higher elevation than Pyongyang, allowing the Japanese to set up artillery and bombard Pyongyang brutally. On September the 15th, while bombarding the city, the Japanese also assaulted the city from multiple directions, forcing the Chinese to surrender. 2,000 Chinese died, around 4,000 were wounded, while the Japanese lost 103 with 433 wounded. The Chinese lost the Qinghui Muslim general, Zuo Baogui, from Shandong province to artillery fire. By the early morning of September the 16th, the Japanese occupied the city. Taking advantage of the heavy rainfall, many Chinese managed to escape to the coastal city of Yuji. In early September, before the news of the loss of the battle of Pyongyang, Yi Hongjiang decided to reinforce Pyongyang by employing the Biang fleet with transports to the mouth of the Daedong River. Over 6,500 troops were being sent, but the IGN knew the Chinese would send reinforcements, so they sent their combined fleet to patrol the Korean coast to force a decisive naval battle. The IGN needed to control the Yellow Sea to be able to freely send their troops to Korea and to stop China from doing the same. On September the 17th, the IGA 5th Division was tasked to land at Chumulpo to push the retreating Chinese forces towards the Yalu River. The IGN thought they could bait the Beiyang fleet to move there where they could force a decisive naval battle. They found the Beiyang fleet at the mouth of the Yalu River. The Chinese were able to land 4,500 troops before being caught up in a naval battle. The Beiyang fleet was commanded by Jing Ruchang and consisted of these ships. They anchored in shallow waters around the mouth of the Yalu River, and then they saw the smoke of the IGN. The combined fleet of the IGN consisted of two squadrons. The flying squadron, commanded by Suzbo Kozo, consisting of these ships, and the main squadron, commanded by Admiral Ito Sikeuki, consisting of these ships. Both fleets began to intercept another, but the Bian fleet was slower with an average speed of 15 knots, whereas the IGN ships could move up to 20 knots. The Bian fleet tried to form a line with ships side by side, but due to confusion in signals and slow speed, they ended up in a wedge position with the two battleships at the forefront. The IGN came at them in a column formation with the flying squadron in the front and the main squadron following from behind. The Chinese began to open fire at 5,000 meters, which was too far to cause significant damage. The Japanese held their fire for over 20 minutes, heading diagonally across the Biang fleet, going twice its speed. On the signal of Admiral Ito, the two squadrons divided, with the flying squadron under Tsuboi heading 8 to 14 knots at the center of the Chinese formation before heading right to flank them. Once in effective range, they battered the Choyang and Yangwei and moved northward. The main squadron followed the same course, but turned left and made a complete turnaround to circle the Chinese. As the flying squadron made their way back south, the two squadrons caught the Chinese in between and began to bombard them. The Dingyuan and Junyuan took the heaviest hits. It did little to their heavy armor, but the Japanese quick firing decimated the crews on their decks. The flying squadron re-engaged and sunk the cruiser Jiyuan, which had run out of ammunition and was attempting to ram a Japanese cruiser. This set off many Chinese ships to flee north. The flying squadron hunted down and destroyed the Xingyuan, but this allowed the other Chinese vessels to flee. The main squadron under Admiral Ito then circled the remaining Chinese vessels and began firing their heavy and quick-firing guns, sweeping the decks and the superstructures of the Chinese vessels. The return fire from the Chinese damaged Yoshino, Akagi, Saikyo Maru, Matsushima, and Hyoi. The Matsushima was the most severely damaged because it lacked armor and was struck by 12-inch shells that tore open its deck and ignited an ammunition, causing a hundred casualties, forcing Admiral Ito to transfer his flag to Hashidate. By sunset, the Jingyuan and Junyuan were nearly out of ammunition but not significantly damaged, with the rest of the surviving Beiyang fleet retreating to Lushunko, called Port Arthur by Westerners, for repairs. Five Beiyang fleet vessels were sunk, with 1,350 sailors killed, the IGN had six ships damaged, with 380 sailors killed. The Biang fleet received orders from Liangjiang to withdraw to Wei Highway, fearing that they could be trapped in Port Arthur. The flagship of the Biang fleet, Jingyuang, struck rocks at the entrance of Wei Highway Harbor, beaching it, 
and the only docks capable of making repairs to it were in Port Arthur, thus effectively taking it out for the remainder of the war. The captain, Lin Tiejing, committed suicide in shame. The reputation of the Biang fleet was severely damaged by this loss, and the IGN won command of the Yellow Sea, enabling the Japanese to move troops to Korea at will. On September the 25th, a week after the naval defeat at the Battle of Yalu, the Guangzhou Emperor announced that because of the suffering of the Chinese soldiers and civilians, the Empress Dowager would not hold her 60th birthday party. General Yu Zhezhou was sentenced to death for his failures to command the ground forces in Korea, but he was able to avoid execution by using connections he had in the Qing government. He reportedly fell into opium addiction. He was replaced by Song Qing, a veteran commander of the Taiping, Nyan, and Dungan rebellions. With the defeat of Pyongyang, the Chinese abandoned northern Korea and took up defensive positions and fortifications alongside the Yalu River near Jiuliangchang. Japanese reinforcements arrived in Korea on October the 10th, allowing them to proceed north. On the night of October the 24th, 1894, the IGA snuck across the Yalu River using pontoon bridges they made. On October the 25th, at 5 p.m., they surprise attacked the outpost of Hushan, east of Jiuliangchang. The defenders deserted their positions, and by the next day, a full retreat of Jiuliangchang was made. The Chinese lost over 2,000 men, while the Japanese reportedly lost only four. General Yamagata's first army took the city of Daodong, while the Chinese forces there retreated. With the capture of Jiuliangchang, the Japanese established a firm foothold in Chinese territory. The Japanese now had two major targets, Dalian and Port Arthur. The first IGA split into two groups under General Nozu Michitsuzura, with the 5th Provisional Division marching to Mukiden, and Lieutenant General Katsuro Taros with the 3rd Provincial Division pursuing fleeing Chinese forces towards the Liaodong Peninsula. When Lieutenant General Katsuro Taro's forces reached Liaodong Peninsula, it was winter and the heavy snow made the IGA easy targets, enabling the Chinese to push them back somewhat. Despite the brutal resistance, the IGA took Daduka, Dakushan, Ziyuan, Tumuchang, Haichang and Kangwaze by December the 3rd. The 2nd IGA Corps, under Ayama, Iowa, landed on the south coast of Liaodong Peninsula, making an amphibious assault in late October, quickly capturing Jinzhou and Dalian by early November. All of this left Port Arthur open. Now, before the Battle of Port Arthur, foreign correspondents covering the war had reported favorably on the battlefield conduct of Japanese soldiers, yet the savage combat the Japanese faced during the winter, just before the Port Arthur campaign, would send them into a vengeful mood. The IGA approached Port Arthur, where there were skirmishes on the outskirts and a panic set in on the defenders of the city, resulting in looting and destruction of property. Many Qing officers secretly fled the fortified city on small boats. On November the 18th, the IGA found that wounded forces they were forced to abandon en route to Port Arthur had been severely mutilated, with their hands and feet cut off, some burnt alive. You see, the Chinese had placed bounties on POWs, up to 50 tails of silver for their heads and other body parts during the war. The Chinese allegedly mutilated several IGA bodies and displayed them at the entrance of the city, infuriating the Japanese. On November the 21st, the IGA stormed the fortifications under heavy fire, and during the night of the 22nd, the surviving Chinese defenders deserted the remaining positions, abandoning 57 large caliber and 163 caliber artillery pieces. Over 4,000 Chinese forces were killed, 600 captured, and the Japanese reportedly lost 40, with 241 wounded. As the IGA entered the city, they were fired upon from houses where Chinese forces had hidden themselves and allegedly were wearing civilian clothing to blend in with the local population. The Japanese commanders ordered their men to go house to house to find the remaining Qing soldiers. What followed was the infamous Port Arthur Massacre, and please note, scholars debate this event to this very day. The IGA entered the city around 2 p.m., just after seeing the mutilation of their comrades, they proceeded to massacre the inhabitants of the city. Western observers reported rape. 
murder, and mutilation. Sources vary greatly, but it is believed that up to 60,000 people were killed. Chinese and Western newspapers carried stories of IGA engaging in drinking, sex orgies, and atrocities on the local populace. All of this would be a preview of what would take place in Nanjing four decades later. Because of the condemnation of the event, the IGA ordered an investigation by Commanding General Oyama Aiwa, the same man who supported the establishment of the Japanese Red Cross Society. His findings showed reasonable cause for the actions of the IGA, stating that the Qing military was hiding amongst the civilians wearing civilian clothing and retaliating. Yet his own legal advisor, Ariga Naigo, who had witnessed the events firsthand, concluded that under international law, Japan bore ultimate responsibility for their actions. What news of the event that reached the Japanese public was only about Japan's great successes, which were celebrated in huge parades in Tokyo. This event stained Japan's military reputation internationally. Having captured Port Arthur, the next target would be the major port, the Bang fleet, Weihawei, at the tip of the Shandong Peninsula. The defenses of Weihawei were a series of land fortifications overlooking the harbor equipped with Krupp and Armstrong field cannons, including two fortified islands in the bay. The IGA separated into two columns, one following the coastal road, the other along a path four miles inland, both to converge on Weihawei on the 29th of January, the Chinese New Year. The IGA launched a three-pronged attack on the landward fortifications to the south and east of the town. The attack was hampered by severe blizzard conditions, and the Biang fleet bombarded them, killing Major General Odira Yezumuze, the highest-ranking IGA casualty of the war. The Chinese army made a stand for over nine hours before retreating, leaving the fortifications largely intact. IGA forces entered the town of Weihe on February the 2nd without opposition, as the last garrison had fled the night before. With the land fortification guns in the hands of the IGA, they were now in a position to fire upon the trapped Biang fleet, making Admiral Ding Ruchang's situation dire. The Japanese managed to remove the boom protecting the harbor, allowing their torpedo boats to make repeated night attacks on the Biang fleet. Combined IGN fleet attacked on February the 7th, severely damaging the Dingyuan and sunk three vessels. The crews of the rest of the fleet mutinied and attempted to escape to Yentai, but in total, six were destroyed. Seven remaining vessels were captured by the Japanese. During the battle, the Chinese defeat looked certain, and Admiral Ito Seuke made an appeal to Admiral Ding, who was a personal friend of his. In his letter, he expressed regret that they had to be at war with another, and he appealed to him to prevent further unnecessary loss of life by capitulating. Ito advised Ding to take political asylum in Japan until the end of the war, and then after he could return home. Ding thanked his friend for the message, but stated that he could not forsake his duties as Admiral of the Beiang Fleet, and that the only remaining thing that he could do was die. Ding Ruchang committed suicide by overdosing on opium in his office at Yigong Island HQ. His deputy admiral, Li Buchan, was ordered to scuttle and blow up the Ding Yuan. After doing so, he also committed suicide. Admiral Ding Ruchang was a respected officer who was a cavalry officer who helped suppress the Taiping and Nian rebellions and who also had led the Biang fleet since 1886. The Japanese knew the admiral's reputation and admired him for taking responsibility in a manner of a proper defeated samurai. The Japanese allowed his body to be carried away on a Chinese ship and as it passed by, the Japanese lowered their flags in an expression of respect. The Battle of Weihaiwei saw the Chinese casualties up to 4,000 with an unknown amount of losses for the Japanese. The remaining vessels of the Biang fleet were surrendered and the fleet was no more. Although the war continued with more battles such as the Battle of Yingko and the invasion of the Pescador Islands, the capture of Weihaiwei effectively ended the war and peace negotiations were quickly brought forward. In January 1895, the Japanese forces were capable of attacking Beijing from Weihaiwei and this gave the Japanese victors the power to impose a treaty strongly in their favor. 
In Japan, there was a triumphant mood, a sense that Japan had arrived as a world power and now could humiliate a nation that historically had humiliated it. Japan chose as a model the conditions that Prussia imposed on France in the Treaty of Frankfurt following its victory in 1871. The treaty included the grants of territory and imposed heavy costs on France. The scholar, Sarah Payne, concluded that Japan's remarkable military successes, winning every important battle without losing a single ship, was not the result of superior ships or weapons. The Chinese had purchased a number of excellent warships and a large supply of rifles. However, many of these ships were old and obsolete, and many Qing officials had been chosen because of their imperial examination credentials rather than their own military skill. The ammunition required for the countless different types of firearms because there was no standard issue firearm made the lack of supplying the units a catastrophe. Added to this was a rampant embezzling of ammunitions by corrupt officials, some ships finding out that half of their shells were either not present or defective while in the midst of battle. Having soldiers from so many different regions of China, each with different dialects and loyalties rendered coordination impossible in comparison to the Japanese who had standardized equipment, superior training, better intelligence, and a sense of unity and patriotism. China was simply unable to compete with it at this time. Overall, there was a high level of corruption and incompetence within the Qing administration. The institutional weaknesses seeped into its military high command and made the Biang fleet ineffective. The Qing dynasty had prepared its military more so to quell rebellions rather than fight another nation, and its ineffective and outdated military system could not meet the challenge. It was time to surrender. The Chinese had previous attempts at negotiations. They sent two officials on February the 1st to Hiroshima to speak with Prime Minister Ito. They were, however, mid-level officials who did not have the authority to make decisions and affix seals. In Japanese eyes, this showed the arrogance of China, who was still not treating Japan with proper respect, and they were unwilling to make any concessions. Prime Minister Ito told them that Emperor Meiji was prepared to carry on negotiations, but only with an official who held power to conclude agreements and affix seals. So, the two officials came back empty-handed. Six weeks after the Japanese destroyed the Biang fleet and captured Wei Wei, they were poised to attack Beijing. The Chinese, in haste, sent an envoy who had the power to affix seals to an agreement. The Japanese would only accept as negotiators Prince Gong or Liang Zhong, both of whom could affix seals. The top officials in Beijing, all Manchu, worried that if the Manchu Prince Gong were to sign an unpopular treaty, it would strengthen anti-Manchu sentiments already present in China. They thought it better to send a Han Chinese representative like Liang Zhong to make an unpleasant concession and then blame him for it later on. The Japanese demands were harsh. The IGA were concerned with the Russian presence in Northeast Asia from its newly built Trans-Siberian Railway, so they demanded control over the Liangdong Peninsula, including Port Arthur and Dalian, which would deny Russia a warm water port in Northeast Asia. The IGN wanted control over Taiwan and to strengthen its position in the Western Pacific. The Japanese financial leaders sought large indemnities to finance the costs of heavy industrialization. The Japanese were confident they could impose all of these demands even though they knew Western powers would not accept Japan's control over such large amounts of territory on the Chinese mainland. On March 19th, Yongzheng and 100 officials arrived in Shimonoseki, a port at southwest corner of Honshu. Shimonosuke was in Yamaguchi Prefecture, the old Choshu domain, where Ito Hirobumi grew up. Although Li Hongzhong and Ito Hirobumi, who had worked together and negotiated in the past and arguably had a friendship and spoke English to another, they used a Chinese-English interpreter for this occasion. Ito Hirobumi began with a proposal that China would certainly refuse. Japan would occupy Tianjin and Chahongguan, China's major railways, and Chinese funds would support all of this Japanese occupation. Ye Hongzhang could not accept any of this, and Ito knew this very well, as both men were quite close to each other and understood each other's political positions at home. 
On March the 24th, when Liang Zhang was returning to his lodging from the negotiation location, a young Japanese firebrand attempted to assassinate him. Before the police could stop the man, Liang Zhang was shot in the cheek just below his eye. Though it was incredibly painful, Liang Zhang chose not to remove the bullet. Japanese officials and the Japanese press were thoroughly embarrassed and aware of the immense damage this would cause to Japan's international reputation. Apologies came in all over Japan and abroad. The Japanese government sought to atone for what it considered a hideous act. Emperor Meiji issued an official apology to the Chinese nation and offered his personal physician to treat Liang Zhang. The emperor also offered China a three-week armistice. Li Hongzhang used his blood nephew, Lord Li Jingfang, to continue negotiations with Ido. Following the assassination attempt, the Japanese lessened their demands but still remained quite harsh. After six days, a treaty was formed. The Treaty of Shimonoseki handed the Pescador Islands, Taiwan, and parts of Liaodong Peninsula, Dalian, to Japan. China was to recognize the complete independence of Korea and to end its suzerainty. China was to pay a war indemnity of over 200 million cuping tails, roughly three-fourths of China's annual budget, over the course of four and a half years. China was to open ports to Japan, Xiaxi, Chongqing, Suzhou, Hangzhou, and to grant Japan favored nation status for foreign trade, which meant that they would not have to pay the Yijin transit tax. Liangzhong was denounced for accepting the conditions of the treaty in China. Thousands of Chinese officials wrote memorials to the emperor denouncing the treaty, but the emperor knew that if China did not sign it, Beijing and Shenyang would be devastated and the Ming tombs could be destroyed. The Manchu court did everything it could to shift the blame. Emperor Shishi passed responsibility to the Guangxu Emperor, whom by selecting Liangzhang as negotiator passed blame onto the Han Chinese for agreeing to such terms. Ironically, Liangzhang, a man who spent his entire life trying to strengthen China for decades and was never fully supported by conservative officials, took the blame. He was stripped of all of his titles except that of Grand Secretary. He was used as a scapegoat for agreeing to the Treaty of Shimonoseki for generations. The Japanese had always been historically treated as inferiors to China, and only when Beijing was in danger did the Chinese yield the tone of superiority. The Japanese took this opportunity to return the humiliation. One territory that they had demanded was the area around Shenyang, which was not a significant location strategically, but it was the original Manchu capital, and it held the imperial tombs. Thus, the Manchu rulers of China for three centuries were thoroughly humiliated and anti-Manchu sentiment would grow even more widespread in China as a result, aiding the destruction of the Qing dynasty 16 years later. In their personal meetings, Ito Hirobumi reminded Li Hongzhang that when they had met in 1886, Li had threatened Ito if he did not agree to China's proposals to quiet things down in Korea. At the time, Li could have never imagined that one day Japan would be the victor of a war over China. Ito said that he had told Li that China should take the time to modernize. Li admitted that he tried to pursue modernization, but many officials resisted and they won out. Li asked Ito if their positions had been switched, what Ito would have done differently. Ito said that he could not have done as well as Li had. Although Li Hongzhang was impressed by Japan's achievements, he was so upset by the war and the treaty that he vowed to never sit foot on Japanese soil again. The next year, a ship he was on traveled and docked at Yokohama, but he refused to go ashore. Six days after the signing of the Treaty of Shimonoseki, the ministers of Russia, Germany, and France stationed in Japan called on the Japanese Ministry of Foreign Affairs to offer friendly advice. This triple intervention suggested that the Liaodong Peninsula area that was handed over to Japan in the treaty should be given back to China. They pointed out that if Japan occupied that area, not too far from Beijing, it would cause the Chinese to worry and be considered a threat to Korea and an obstacle of peace in East Asia. It was clear if Japan did not follow this friendly advice, 
The foreign powers were prepared to use force to intervene, and Japan could not hope to match their combined power at this time. On November the 7th, 1895, six months after the Treaty of Shimonoseki, a new treaty was signed returning the Liaodong area back to China. The Japanese government knew its public would find this to be outrageous, so they made a story that they were handing it over as a magnanimous gesture to China. The Japanese public exploded nonetheless, arguing that Japan had won a war and ended the unequal treaties and should not bow down to the demands of Western powers anymore. The Japanese press stated Japan was not yet fully welcomed as a world power. Russia took over the Liangdong Peninsula shortly after and began to use Port Arthur as a warm water port three years after. The dice of war would be cast again. So, just to summarize everything that we've learned, corruption within the Qing administration led to low performance for the Biang fleet and for the Qing military overall. While on the other hand, modernization efforts made by Japan helped their combined fleet and their military win a war against a larger nation like China. In the end, the treaty that Japan and China signed humiliated the nation of China and bolstered Japan to become the dominant power in Asia. However, the looming threat of the Russian Empire was near. Come back next time where we're going to cover the Boxer Rebellion. And please, if you've not already done so, hit that like and subscribe button so that I can feed my little parrot friends over here. This has been the Pacific War Channel, over and out.